Globally, pork production continues to grow. Improvements in management and genetics have enabled a significant improvement in the production efficiency of sows. Unfortunately, there also has been a steady rise in sow mortality, and one of the major reasons for that is pelvic organ prolapse, otherwise known as POP. Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a look at the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries. I'm your host, Sarah Muirhead. Joining us today to talk about some recent research findings related to POP are Dr. Jack Deckers of Iowa State University and a PhD student working with Dr. Deckers, Vishesh Batea. They, along with Dr. Jason Ross, also of Iowa State, have investigated the genetic basis of uterine prolapse with the assistance of Topig's Norsvin. The main finding that they came across was that uterine prolapse appears to be even more genetically influenced than what was previously realized. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Topig's Norsvin. Swine genetic company Topics Norsefin is renowned for its innovative approach to implementing new technologies and its continuous focus on cost-efficient and sustainable pig production. Research, innovation, and dissemination of genetic improvements are the cornerstones of this company. For more information, visit topicsnorsefin.us. So as we look at maintaining and even bettering the productivity of our herds and particularly our sows, a better understanding of those factors that influence POP has become increasingly important. And you've been doing some work in this area. Provide us with an overview of the research study that you've done and what its main objectives were. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the previous years, um, a lot of research studies that were done in order to find any sort of genetic basis of sow pelvic organ prolapses. Um, there were um, a couple of studies from Dr. Stolder's group that evaluated um, uh, some sort of heritability and reported um, almost um, zero heritability, 0.003, when they looked at uterine, uh, vaginal, and rectal prolapses. Whereas when um, Janelle and Tobix Norsman's group did an initial analysis with uh, pedigree-based data. Uh, they found almost 22% heritability in this, um, in the data set that they were working with. So part of the research objective for this um, whole study was to use that genomic data uh, to confirm the role of genetics in susceptibility to pelvic organ prolapses in those sows. Um, in the same data set that was analyzed by Janelle and the Topix Norseman group, but also to extend it further and identify any sort of genomic regions or candidate genes uh, that are associated with the susceptibility to pelvic organ prolapses that will get get us or give us a better understanding of you know the biology behind what's what's going on um, behind the pelvic organ prolapses. So that was kind of the main objective and um, idea behind pursuing this this research study. So now you looked at a, like a data set. Um, do you think that was, I mean, is that considered a big data set, a small data set? Are you looking at something that, you know, really you can draw some strong conclusions from? Right. Yeah. I mean, as far as the data set is concerned, we had data on almost 30,000 purebred sows, um, of which we had almost 14,000 sows that were genotyped um, from ranging from 2012 to 2022. So that's almost 10 years of data that we had 
uh, from two multiplier farms across the US. Um, especially with the POP related data set, this is considered a really, really big data set because um, there hasn't been any reports, at least to our knowledge, that have reported that big of a data set. Um, in our data set, we had almost 7.1% of um, culling uh, that was due to, due to public open prolapses. So I think for, for this particular study or this area, this was really considered a big data set. Jack, what, what was the motivation behind pursuing this particular area of research? Yeah, this, uh, you know, of course, POP is, is uh, an important problem uh, that, uh, you know, it needs, a, needs some resolution and some solutions of what uh, you know, both breeding companies and producers can do. Um, and there's a lot of un unclarity about, you know, what are the factors that are um, um, contributing to, you know, sows getting, getting POP and uh, um, genetics was also unclear, unclear whether genetics was a, a potential contributor. And uh, and so this study was able to uh, find some clarity or confirm that genetics is important, at least in this particular uh, population and this these two herds that the data were collected on. Um, and, and so, yeah, so it, it's, it was very important to get that information and, and uh, we very uh, grateful to Topix Norseman for allowing us to use these data because as Fishes said, this is a unique data set in terms of the size and having the individual sow information and, and the genomics associated with it to be able to dig into the genetic basis and uh, understand some something more about the biology, which can then help us uh, address these uh, this, this important problem for the industry. Is there any any estimate on the cost of a pop to the U.S. or even to the global hog industry? Did you look at any of that as you entered into deciding to to look at this research? Not economically. Um, I I didn't really do the economic side of it, but I'm assuming um, since pop is something that if if a pop happens, if there's an incidence of pop before farrowing. So the sow has to be removed. So the sow gets removed, plus the future litter that she was about to give birth to. Also, um, you know, the veterinarians try to save the sow depending on when the sow is um, observed. Um, or, But then when the sow is removed, then you lose the cost of the sow plus the future litter. Um, but if she happens to do it after the farrowing, you eventually also lose, lose the sow as well so you know there's some sort of financial aspect that's associated with pop but um, i i didn't really do the economic analysis but i'm assuming depending on the growing incidence across the us it is affecting you know small scale producers and large scale producers a lot more um, depending on what sort of incidents they are um, their farm is observing it's also a global issue isn't it yeah, I mean, there were, you know, when I was doing some sort of background on, on some sort of POP studies, um, interestingly, there's a lot of POP studies that have been reported, now being reported in Europe as well, especially in the um, you know, Spain, Portugal area. So, you know, these reports have started coming up and people are more aware, at least in the European region, that I'm aware of. You know, in the U.S., it has been a problem um, in the last uh, five, six, seven years, um, and it's, the incidence is growing. So the concern 
um, is, is really growing. But yes, now it's becoming a, a global issue that, that needs a solution. And just to add to that, I mean, it's not necessarily, you know, bigger farms have more problems. Uh, you know, pop can occur on small farms too. Uh, and as far as the genetics, uh, you know, the same, the same line that we used in this study, that same line in other herds or other countries has no pop. So it, it is a combination of, uh, you know, genetics and, you know, environmental factors that it, uh, it occurs in some herds, not in others. And in some herds, it suddenly shows up. So there is a, a very strong environmental component also that we really don't fully understand. Um, and, and, you know, this study has provided some, some of that biology that, uh, that could be uh, pursued to, um, to further investigate what those environmental factors are and how it can be uh, mitigated. Leads me into the question of were there any unexpected or, or surprising discoveries perhaps that you made during this study? It sounds like maybe the environment might have been one of those kinds of things, more of an influence than perhaps you thought. Bishess, what uh, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, initially, um, you know, before going on to you know pursue this study, I, I talked to a lot of individuals about what they think. Uh, could be the cause of prolapse. You know, I talked to nutritionists, I talked to veterinarians, um, I talked to a lot of research professors that have, you know, done some sort of work in in the prolapse or have some sort of connection to reproductive biology or some sort of, you know, glucose metabolism because that also is an, a, a factor that leads to, you know, muscle function and things like that. So based on that knowledge, you know, we were expecting to see maybe maybe find one or two genomic regions, you know, that may have, maybe you see a sharp peak, maybe one genomic region explaining more of the genetic variant. So that might be um, kind of the, um, fact, uh, that might be the region that might have the association with the prolapse. But uh, surprisingly, we found six genomic regions and six different uh, across the swine genome that had, you know, that explained close to two to 3% of genetic variants um, and had some sort of associations with the susceptibility to pelvic organ prolapse. So, so that was kind of an unexpected or surprising discovery. Uh, but then again, when we looked more into the research, it kind of explained itself that, you know, this is such a complex problem um, and it has so many factors um, that are associated with um, susceptibility to this disease. So I think when in, in, uh, previously, it was very surprising, but then when we started doing a lot of research and getting into the biology behind it, it kind of start, slowly started making sense that, you know, it's a complex problem. There's multiple factors that are um, leading to this, you know, as um, Jack mentioned, that environment is a huge effect. Um, so I think initially it was surprising, but then again, um, kind of started making sense. Yeah, just to add to that. Um... Yeah, as Fischer said, it's a, it's a complex problem. You know, there's 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 not a silver bullet either from the environmental side of management or or genetics. There's many genes that contribute to it, uh, and there's many potential uh, environmental factors that contribute to it. So it is not an easy answer, but um, you know, it it is giving us some insight. In these studies um, do give us insight into uh, you know, potential causes and uh, contributors. I, I would like to add was 
the fact that initially when it was reported that, you know, Janelle and the group found 22% of the heritability in this, everyone was surprised because this was like the first study, breakthrough study that actually reported some sort of heritability in this. And when we confirmed it with genomic data, we also found kind of the heritability at the same levels. And, and I think that was very reaffirming that, okay, there is some sort of heritability and we can pursue this research further. So uh, that was another um, surprising discovery that initially uh, Janelle reported and then when we confirmed, then, you know, we kind of gained, got some, uh, gained more trust in the data, um, as to say. So then what is the future, the potential future direction or implications of your research in there, in this area? Are there some follow-ups that are planned? I think as far as like the future directions or implications of this research, um, one avenue that, that could be pers uh, pursued is, you know, we've reported some of the genomic regions that like one of the genomic regions on chromosome one is associated uh, with estrogen receptor. Um, so maybe measuring um, the estrogen levels in cells uh, and, you know, implicating it, looking at with the susceptibility to public organ prolapses could be kind of give you a better understanding of some of these hormonal imbalances that might be the cause, um, you know, where the tipping point of the sow is, whether the sow is going to get prolapse in the parity or the next parity. Uh, I think um, that is one follow-up study that could be done, but other things that could be done is looking at bivariate analysis, so looking at, you know, other traits, so maybe like litter size, um, because that, again, people associate litter size with with you know higher litter size, higher incidence of pop, but we, we we haven't really found anything any sort of that. So maybe doing that bivariate analysis, finding any sort of um, similar genomic regions that may genetically control both the traits, uh, could be something that could be um, further done. Um, yeah. In addition to that, uh, you know, breeding companies based on this information, they they can start selecting against susceptibility to pop. Uh, if they have the data, if they have the right data, you know, the data, like the data that from Topics Northwind that we analyzed, they, they can start using that to uh, to select for um, animals that are uh, less less susceptible to POP. Um, even though it's complex, there's many genes involved, that the same is true for other traits that, you know, they've been success, uh, successful in selecting for, like reproduction, litter size, growth rate, they're also affected by many, many genes, but you know, using the right data and the right tools, we can make uh, um, genetic improvement. We've, we've seen that. Um, and then in addition, from a, you know, a management side, the diet side, you know, the, the, the biology that uh, we were able to uh, uncover, discover you know, associated with uh, susceptibility to pop-like you know, the estrogen, estrogen uh, receptor gene, uh, you know, calcium balance, you know, bone mineral density and collagen and, you know, strength of lig ligaments of the pelvic floor. Um, those are all things that can now be studied in more detail in design studies that look at, you know, what, what if we change the calcium concentration in the diet, for example, uh, at, at a given uh, stage of uh, gestation. Um, now, can that help uh, with uh, reducing the incidence of, of pulp? So it's leading us into uh, future studies that can 
investigate those specific questions and, and hopefully find some answers what can be done from a management or a diet st standpoint. So Vishesh, summarize for us your, your key takeaways, those really important messages that you want to leave our audience with here today. Absolutely. I mean, this study, it's, it's a breakthrough study in terms of reporting, um, you know, provides multiple lines of evidence that susceptibility to uh, POP is partially determined by genetics and, you know, the evaluated population and, and the environment that these cells were in. Um, the, the moderate her the heritability estimates that were reported, you know, uh, they can be uh, used uh, to make selection decisions and select sows uh, for for being less susceptible uh, to public one prolapses. Uh, I, I think, and you know, the way the study was done, uh, we also reported, um, you know, moderate to high estimates of genetic correlations um, of susceptibility to public organ prolapses with um, sows in uh, with the same sow in, with different parities. So I think that really helps confirm that there is some sort of genetics that is controlling the susceptibility to pelvic organ prolapses and could help, um, you know, structure and as mentioned before, um, make uh, plan some follow-up studies um, and develop some mitigation strategies to reduce the incidence globally. Jack, any key takeaways from uh, your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think Fisher uh, said said understanding that uh, realizing that there is a genetic basis to susceptibility to pop at least in you know some populations and some uh, some herds uh, is uh, is important and uh, uh, can be used to uh, uh, select against it and to uh, understand the biology better such that we can follow up with additional studies. Um, and you know, and this is uh, important information to uh, uh, to uh, be made available to the industry. And and we're very grateful for Topics Northfin that they were uh, allowed us to use this data and publish the results. Uh, nobody likes to uh, talk about having uh, pop in their in their herds, or uh, uh, and so we're very uh, grateful that Topics Northfin was able to uh, make this data available and and and. Uh, um allow us to publish the results such that you know we can everybody can learn from it and 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 uh, plan those follow-up studies also the national court board um they funded uh Fischer's, uh stay in, with topics northfin in the netherlands uh and uh, his travel and his uh, uh, stipend for his uh, phd that part of his PhD, and this was part of the survivability grant that Dr. Jason Ross from our department uh, uh, has been leading, and uh, so it's been a very useful contribution to that overall um, um, area of research in terms of survivability of piglets and of sows. Our thanks to Iowa State University researchers, Dr. Jack Deckers and Dr. Vishesh Batea. Also, Dr. Jason Ross, we appreciate your insight here on this important topic. I'm Sarah Muirhead, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. If you would like to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and animal feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast channel. This episode of Feedstuffs In Focus is sponsored by Topics Norspin. 
Swine genetic company Topics Norsefin is renowned for its innovative approach to implementing new technologies and its continuous focus on cost-efficient and sustainable pig production. Research, innovation, and dissemination of genetic improvements are the cornerstones of this company. For more information, visit topicsnorsefin.us. Until next time, have a great day and thank you for listening.